Good morning, everyone. Last Sunday, on the fourth Sunday of Advent, as well as on Christmas Eve, we looked at the most thorough description of the Christmas story, which is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And we've seen God break into the broken world as a human being in the form of a baby in the person of Jesus. One of Luke's most notable attributes as a writer is that over and over again, he makes the point that Jesus comes into the lives of a vast array of people. Male and female, rural and urban, young and old, rich and poor, married and single, Jesus comes into the lives of all of them. And so this morning we'll take a look at the story of Simeon and Anna, who get to meet Jesus in the temple for the very first time. So you can follow along with me in your bulletins, your pew Bibles, or just listen while I read from Luke 2, 25 to 38. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Look, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news that Jesus brings in this Christmas season. Thank you for hope and new life. Speak to us this morning through your word. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. We all have our oddities and quirks, and I have my fair share of them. But one that seems to surprise people on a regular basis is that I am completely unable to fall asleep while watching a movie. As far as I can recall, I've never, ever fallen asleep while watching a movie. Not once. Action or sci-fi, rom-com or documentary, I've never fallen asleep watching a movie. I've only ever watched one horror movie, and I certainly didn't fall asleep during that one either. Now, there's probably a few reasons why I don't fall asleep during movies. One is that I'm a fairly sensitive sleeper. A lot of noise is not, is not good if I'm trying to sleep. The other piece is I don't watch that many movies. On a staff at this church that loves movies, I'm definitely the least cinematically inclined. But I think the biggest contributing factor to why I can't fall asleep while watching a movie is the fact that I can't stand to not know how a movie ends. The moment I begin to process what a movie's about, the moment I get to know a key character, I'm hooked. 
I can't leave, I can't fall asleep, I am in it until the end. Now, you can see how this would be inconvenient, and arguably the worst time for this is during the holidays when Hallmark movies are on. My mom and sister have decided that it is their personal bonding time to watch Hallmark movies, and if I spend more than 60 seconds in that room, I am hooked until the end. Even the most predictable movie, a Hallmark movie, all the way to the end. And so while this is probably a little bit odd, some people are out cold in five minutes, it's like movies are their personal sleeping pills, I think there's something a little human about craving resolution. We crave a happy ending to the story. It's why people love fairy tales and superhero movies. The worse things get, the more we crave resolution. The stronger evil becomes, the sweeter it is when good wins out. So we're going to talk about this craving for a resolution this morning through the eyes of Simeon and Anna, two people who appear just once in Scripture who are waiting to see how God's story is going to finish out. They get to meet the baby Jesus before he starts doing miracles, before he starts feeding thousands of people, before he starts healing lepers or does anything for anyone while he just is. So our narrative picks up just after the shepherds have met Jesus. It's approximately 40 days have passed from that time to where we are this morning. Luke begins by introducing us to this new character, Simeon. He lived in the city of Jerusalem, and we haven't met Simeon before, and we won't meet him again. Simeon was a common name, and while there are a few other Simeons in the Old and New Testaments, this is likely the only time that this Simeon shows up. So what do we learn about Simeon? The first two things we learn is that Simeon is righteous and devout. While our English ears may hear this as a bit repetitive, righteous and devout, Luke is getting at two different things to describe this man. Righteous is a description of Simeon's relationship with others. Righteous means that he acts well towards others. He is kind and compassionate. He treats others with respect. Devout, on the other hand, means that he acts well towards God. As a Jew, being devout meant one consistently fulfilled their religious duties. Simeon was a blameless man, both in his relationship with others and in his relationship with God. Our character is righteous and devout. But it says he was in the temple waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. The first thing that may come to your mind when you hear this term is a consolation prize. A prize given to a competitor who doesn't win. My own personal absolute least favorite prize to get. A consolation prize is meant to comfort someone in their loss. When you lose, you get a consolation prize. It comes from the same root as the verb console, naturally. So when you experience some sort of loss, you need to be consoled. So the first question we should ask when we come to this text this morning is why did the people of Israel need to be consoled? Why was Simeon so concerned with the consolation of Israel? Why did the people of Israel need to be comforted? What was the loss that they had experienced? Well... There were a few. Since the peak of the nation of Israel under King David, approximately a thousand years prior, Israel had been on a solid losing streak. 
First the northern kingdom was invaded by the Assyrians, then the southern kingdom by the Babylonians. Exile after exile, Babylonian oppressors were traded for Persian overlords. In a brief respite, the Persians allowed the Israelites to return to their land, yet quickly the Greeks showed up. Then the Maccabees took control, but then the Romans rolled into town. Despite multiple attempts to gain their independence, despite multiple attempts to save themselves, the Jewish people found themselves at the time of Jesus once again ruled by a foreign oppressor. The status quo was oppressed, not liberated. And while this series of unfortunate events may have come as a surprise to many, any Jew who read the prophets well would have heard Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel announcing that their sin would not remain unpunished. They had lost much because of their sin. Yet the prophets had also spoken of hope. They had spoken of a child that would be a born, a son that would be given, who would reign on the throne of David forever and ever. This child would be anointed as the king of Israel, and that word for anointed one is from the Hebrew word Messiah, which is rendered in Greek as the Christ. Sound familiar? It isn't Jesus' last name, it's his title. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the Christ. When the Jews were waiting for the consolation of Israel, they were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for someone to save them from their oppressors, from the terrible situation they had put themselves in. So Simeon didn't invent the idea of the consolation of Israel. He merely got it from the prophet Isaiah, primarily from Isaiah 40, which we read numerous times during Advent, where the prophet speaks for God, saying, Comfort, comfort my people. So now that we know why Israel needs to be consoled, The second question we should ask is, why do we need to be consoled? Why do we need to be comforted? Maybe you're one of those people who don't need to be convinced of their sin. You don't need to be convinced of the darkness in your own heart, of your brokenness and wrongdoing. Maybe you don't need to be convinced that you're not okay, that something is seriously wrong with you and wrong with this world, or, as the British author Francis Spufford puts it in more choice words, you, as a human, have a human propensity to mess things up. There are sermons that have been preached that may help you convince that you are indeed a sinner in the hands of an angry God, as the old Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards put it. But if I needed to be convinced of your sinful nature, it would probably be easier to just ask your husband or your wife your roommate or your kids, your coworker, or that random stranger from the grocery store. The human condition is, in its very essence, in its very nature, subject to sin. And sin causes loss. Think of our first parents in the garden, Adam and Eve. Their sin caused them to lose out on perfection, to lose out on fellowship with God in the garden. So we, just like our first parents and our current parents, are in need of consolation. It is not just the people of Israel who need to be consoled, but all of humanity, for we have all experienced great loss. We've all experienced loss. Loss that we bring upon ourselves through our own messiness, through our own propensity to mess things up, and also loss that this broken world has thrust upon us. Depression and injustice anxiety and infertility, cancer and infidelity, sickness and death, we have all experienced loss. 
Cornelius Plantinga Jr. sums it up well with his book titled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a Breviary on Sin. And so you have a great need to be consoled, just as I do. And if you still don't think you need to be consoled, then I suggest you get a little closer to those who have lost much. Go make friends with some of those in life who haven't had such a nice go of things. I suggest you tear down a few of your well-constructed walls and get a bit closer to suffering. Get a bit closer to your friend with their recent diagnosis, to the mentally unstable man you pass every day, to your coworker whose husband just left them. If you aren't familiar with loss, then you aren't familiar with the human experience. And you need to get a little closer to those who have lost a lot. So will we admit our need for comfort? Will we admit our need to be consoled? Will we admit our need to be saved? Will we acknowledge the great loss of our broken relationship with our Heavenly Father? And will we risk hoping for consolation, hoping for comfort and salvation? Hope is a dangerous thing. It's a risky thing. It's what brought Simeon into that temple every single day, hoping and waiting. Nietzsche, the famous German philosopher, said this about hope. Hope, in reality, he says, is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torment of man. You can hear in his negative evaluation of hope that hope is risky. Hope leads to the possibility of being disappointed. Hope in the wrong things will lead to disappointment. And so when we hope, we open ourselves up to that. But if we hope in the right things or the right one, hope is worth it. So the new character in our story, this righteous and devout Simeon, waits for a solution, just like we do. He waits for consolation for himself and for his people for something a bit more substantive than a pat on the back or a Hallmark card, and we find ourselves in the very same situation. We find ourselves in the very same situation, despite the fact that I don't think anyone with the authority like an author of Scripture would refer to me as righteous or devout. So as Mary and Joseph brought Jesus into the temple, Simeon took the baby Jesus He was probably about six weeks old at the time, probably about 40 days old, and he blessed God. The next words out of the mouth of Simeon have been used for thousands of years in church liturgies as prayers and homilies, used in Vesper services, at funerals. Simeon's first statement is this, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Nunc dimittis is the famous Latin phrase. Now depart, it means. You see, Luke tells us in verse 26 that Simeon had been promised by God that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, the consolation of Israel. I like to do puzzles every once in a while. And when I get close to finishing a puzzle, there is no stopping until it's done. I've never been able to go asleep. Once, I think the threshold is 100 pieces left. Once there's 100 pieces left... I can't go to sleep until I finish this puzzle. 
The, the picture must be completed. The story must be completed. And I've stayed up hours and hours beyond when I should have just trying to finish a silly little puzzle. Imagine the sigh of relief in Simeon's voice. A deep breath out. A deep breath in. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. The puzzle is complete. The pressing question, how Israel will be consoled, to Simeon somehow answered in the face of this little baby that he holds. Simeon offers this explanation for his great relief in verse 29. My eyes have seen your salvation. A salvation, he says, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Salvation somehow from this little baby. How in the world did Simeon believe that this baby he was holding could save the world? Simeon knew in his heart that this baby somehow that he held in his arms would save not just the Jewish people but the whole world. Simeon somehow knew that this baby Jesus would change everything. And this is a picture of faith. Faith is confidence in God's promises when looking at the face of baby Jesus. Faith is trust that God will comfort, trust that God will console, trust that God will save. And it is confidence that God will act, maybe not in the way that we expect him to, maybe not in human power and, and domination, but that he will act even if in the meekness and humility of a little baby. Faith is confidence in God's promises when looking at the face of Jesus. Now, Simeon's words are filled with beauty and richness. You could read that prayer a thousand times. It's beautiful. But there are also a few frightening truths. Simeon goes on to speak to Mary in verse 34 and following. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus, Simeon points out, will not be loved and accepted universally. Not all who stare into the face of Jesus will respond as Simeon has. Some will oppose Jesus. Some will want to kill Jesus. Some will kill Jesus. Simeon says many will fall, meaning that they will choose death over the life that Jesus brings, while others will rise, a reference to the resurrection that leads to everlasting life for all who trust in Jesus. Maybe the most jarring image is of the sword which would pierce Mary's heart. Scholars have long taken this allusion to refer to the fact that Mary would have to watch her own son die a gruesome death on the cross. Mary would experience deep loss. Mary, the mother of God, would need to be consoled, comforted, and saved, just like Simeon and just like us. So now that we've seen how Simeon reacts when he looks at the face of Jesus, how do we react when we look at the face of Jesus? As I ask this question, I acknowledge that there's probably a more preliminary question that may be on your mind, which is what in the world does it mean to look at the face of Jesus when Jesus isn't physically present with us? And I want to offer two answers to this question 
But before I offer those answers, I want to, I want to say that neither of them will satisfy you. Because we all long for Jesus' true physical presence. It's always better to be with someone in the flesh. And so while these answers won't totally suffice, they are answers to the question of what it looks like to look at the face of Jesus. First, we can look at Jesus' face in Scripture. We have story after story of who Jesus is, of how he loves, of how he healed the sick and fed the hungry and raised the dead and welcomed the outcast. When we study scripture, we get to see a little bit of the face of Jesus. Second, we can look at Jesus' face in the face of others. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, scripture tells us. We, as a church, are his body. And as we reflect Christ in our lives, people get to see the face of Jesus in our face. As we bring kindness into the lives of others, we allow them to see the face of Jesus in our face. So how do we react to looking into the face of Jesus? When we read about who Jesus is in Scripture, when we see his love and his kindness in the face of another, how do we react to him? Are we at peace? Are we content like Simeon was? Do we look at him and see our salvation? Do we look at him and see grace and forgiveness? Do we look at him and feel comfort and consolation? These are the things that he offers. And maybe today you, like me, need to ask God to help you receive this comfort, consolation, and salvation from Jesus. Knowing that all your attempts to comfort yourself, all your attempts to self-soothe, all your attempts to save yourself have fallen abysmally short over and over and over again. Luke goes into great detail to identify the next character in our story, who he says was coming up at that very hour to the place where Simeon, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were. Anna was a prophetess, Luke tells us in verse 36, which is a rare identity marker. There are only seven prophetesses mentioned in Scripture. She was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, one of the lost ten tribes of Israel, who were deported by the Assyrians after the invasion of the northern kingdom. Anna is described as advanced in years, and while the Greek grammar is inconclusive, it's likely that it means she lived 84 years as a widow after being married for only seven years, making her at least a hundred. Anna had a permanent residence in the temple, which is not terribly uncommon, but what set her apart, like Simeon, was her dedication to God, her dedication to fasting and prayer. The text tells us that these were her habit night and day. Anna doesn't get a beautiful soliloquy like Simeon does, but her response to seeing the baby Jesus is simple and profound. Luke tells us that she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. Another individual, another person who looks at the face of Jesus, of little baby Jesus, and comes up with the same conclusion, this is Israel's consolation. Or maybe a more proper use of pronouns, he is Israel's consolation. Anna immediately gives thanks to God and tells everyone who is waiting for the redemption of Israel that he is here. Anna functions like the shepherds who we've heard of so many times before. She praises God, and then she immediately goes out and tells others. 
So here are two people who are looking desperately for a savior every single day, a man and a woman dedicated to the Lord, waiting for comfort, consolation, and salvation. What are you waiting for this morning? What are you hoping for? Let this text be an encouragement to us this morning to hope in God for our comfort, consolation, and salvation every single day because he's here and we see him in the face of Jesus. As we read his stories in scripture, as we interact with one another, we get to see Jesus. We've talked a lot this morning about how Simeon and Anna responded to looking at the face of Jesus. But I want to close by asking you a simple question that a mentor once asked me. When God looks at you, what face do you think he makes? When God looks at you, what face do you think he makes? In the person of Jesus Christ, the almighty God of the universe took on a human face. This is the beauty of the Christmas story, the amazing reality of the incarnation, of the enfleshment of God. Jesus has a human body, and he still does. He has a human face with a smile or a frown. He didn't run from us. He forever joined himself to us. So when God looks at you, what face do you think he makes? Do you think he's angry at how you keep messing up, how you can't seem to get it together? Or do you think his expression is flat? Maybe he's not angry, he's just disappointed. Maybe he's saddened by your failures or exasperated by how you manage to screw things up so royally. Maybe you think his face is just like the face of your earthly father who didn't like you so much. Let me tell you this as clearly as I possibly can. As you stumble along trying to follow Jesus, like Simeon and Anna waiting for salvation, waiting for consolation, as you stumble along trying to believe in who Jesus is, Jesus is smiling at you. His face is a face of kindness towards you. And as a theological point, the Father's face is the same, smiling. Because when he looks at you, the feeble human that you are, who tries to trust Jesus, he sees the spotless innocence of his son. As the author of Hebrews sums it up, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus changes everything. Simeon and Anna knew this, and it is my prayer that each of us would come to know this in a deeper and further way today, that Jesus is our comfort, consolation, and salvation, that the baby Jesus changed everything. He's the answer to the profound loss that is inevitable in our human experience. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and we, like Simeon and Anna, are called to wait on him and to hope in him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for not ignoring our broken human condition. Thank you for breaking into our human experience, for being our comfort, our consolation, and our salvation. Thank you for who you are, for your great love for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.